Uh, I'm Steve Saltstein. I'm the CEO of uh, Force Family Office. I want to thank you all for joining us today. Um, Force stands for uh, Family Office Research, Consulting, and Events. And we are the largest network of investment-seeking family offices in the US. Basically, what we do is we bring families together to share intellectual capital, best practices, meet best-in-class service providers. But ultimately, what we do is we bring families together in the context of co-investing. Uh, and uh, we have uh, made so many different co-investment alliances and relationships. Uh, it's now my pleasure to welcome the rest of the panel. Noel. Hi, I'm Noel Picaro Brown. I'm with the Conscious Wealth Management Group at Morgan Stanley. We are a wealth management team that focuses on impact investing and bringing families together like Steve. Hi, good morning. I'm Matt Salloway. I'm the CEO of GSI Ventures, which is a single family office for a member of the Saudi royal family. GSI stands for Growth, Sustainability, and Integrity. I'm also the co-founder and managing partner of SIP Global Partners, which is a performance-based global VC fund investing in the 5G economy. Very nice to be here. Hi, I'm Rosemary Sagar, and uh, I manage the uh, charitable assets for Mark Kingdon at Kingdon Capital. Kingdon Capital is one of the oldest hedge funds in New York, was set up in 83, and uh, the uh, charitable foundation was set up in the late 90s. And um, I've been there almost 17 years now and uh, have more of an institutional background. Um, I ran the International Investment Division at U.S. Trust and, uh, the, uh, and International Equities at um, GE Investments, uh, which was the uh, managing the pension fund. Good morning. I'm Thomas Haug. Is my mic on? <laughs> Thomas Haug, managing member of Aspen Tree Advisory. Aspen Tree Advisory is a multifamily office based here in New York, best city in the world. Um, we have a consulting and advisory practice primarily for family offices. And for a number of years, I have uh, served on Stephen Saltstein's board. So thank you for joining us this morning. So, Rosemary, let's start with you. Um, can you talk about uh, how running a family office, uh, you think about the dynamics of impact investing, and you know, to this morning we're here to talk about creating positive change. Uh, how do you think about that in regards to your asset allocation model? Well, I think um, you know, since I had this family office perspective and the institutional perspective, I think it's a, a good idea to sort of uh, think of impact investing as a um, you know, it's both art and science, and the um, institutional perspective has been very much, uh, well, moving more and more to the science end, and um, there's been um, some very good innovations the last few years on, on metrics on, and in terms of uh, compiling data and actually measuring the impact. But for family offices, my view is it's more at the art end of the spectrum, and it's more the question of, okay, what does impact mean to the individual family office? Um, so speaking for us, I mean, you know, the theme here is uh, positive impact, but we'll take it a step further. It's like, we want to make a difference and there's different ways of making a difference, mm -hmm. and um, uh, and therefore, you know. So I I know I mean Matt is, does something completely different from what we do, but um, you know we take the global holistic view of we can make donations and we can invest 
uh, with impact and making a difference. So, but ultimately, we want to make the biggest difference possible. And what's the best way to get there? So, how do you decide where to put your money? How do you decide what investments to make? Um, ultimately, we are well. Okay, I I should explain that we're just three officers of the foundation, and Mark and Anla. Uh, his wife, uh, do the donating and I do the investing. And uh, they are very passionate about a handful of causes and are very involved on the boards. And uh, uh, you know, so, so it's sort of uh, probably 80-20 you know, or 90-10 or something where the balance is, is thinly spread, but, they're, uh, but the, uh, the whole concentration is so that truly a difference can be made. And uh, and so we need high returns for that. So we will never uh, have the luxury of sacrificing returns um, to make an impact in the on the investing side, because ultimately we, uh, you know, that's the more direct way of making an impact through the donations. So that's what I mean by looking at it holistically. So we've you know we've looked at SRI and. Um, there's a lot to be said, um, but it hasn't suited our needs because ultimately it would leave us with too low returns for the most part, even though there are you know, correlation benefits or whatever. So, Tom, just following up on that question. Um, so do you think uh, being an impact investor, you have to sacrifice returns? So I don't. I think impact investing was thought of very differently, um, you know, years ago. And as of late, I actually think there are certain impact investments that generate equal or more significant alpha than um, traditionally thought. Right. And and I feel like there is much more of a focus on impact today than there ever has been before. Right. Noelle? I would agree with that. I mean, those institutions, these organizations that are actually channeling capital for change are not just looking at profitability at all costs. They're bringing in all the other non-financial data in order to really hone in an opportunity. And it's that um, looking so expansively that allows to mitigate risk. It also sees greater opportunity. So if anything, the folks I work with actually believe that that type of approach is going to lead to a greater outcome, both on the financial and impact um, side. Matt, you have a, a global effort with the Prince. Um, you're, uh, you know, uh, running offices in Japan, uh, where you're partnered with NTT Docomo and Saudi Arabia and the U.S. Um, how do you think about it globally? So, you know, we spent a lot of time when we started the family office uh, about five years ago. How how are we going to create the right mission statement, the right values? Um, and and when we took a step back, and and I'll quote, not to get a little uh, cheesy, but I'll quote Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, you know, to leave the world better than you found it, that is to have succeeded. And I think, you know, from, from the family that I work with, we wanted to find a way to obviously protect our, our capital and, and, and grow it, but also to find a way to, to make an impact. Um, and that's, that's what we're trying to do. GSI, the values, the core values, our pillars, growth, sustainability, and integrity. Took a while to come up with those ideals. And they basically embody how we look to invest, how we look to partner with folks. Um, technology for us is an area where we believe we can make the biggest impact. We have a foundation 
the family has a foundation. The foundation's focused on many important causes, I'm sure like, like Rosemary's uh, family. Um, but on the investing side, we are returns driven. And that's, that's a fact. I mean, that's how we look at everything. And um, when we get into technology, we started a fund about two years ago with NTT. Uh, the fund is mostly investing in North America, but being a bridge into Japan, the Middle East, uh, we believe we can have a true impact on, on other economies, uh, bridge the gap, other cultures, improve the quality of life, uh, aligned sort of with the values in, in Saudi, specifically a Vision 2030, moving away from uh, uh, oil and, and, and becoming more sustainable. So the way that we approach it, I think, is it's unique to each family, uh, but it's all about making a difference, uh, but also you know, growing our capital. So I know you have to uh, you know, mine the returns, so to speak, but do you give uh, extra weight if something is going to make a positive impact in the world? We, we definitely do. I mean, um, we, and again, we have a broad view of impact. So we're investing in disruptive technologies. So that's, you know, for example, we're investing in um, 5G, uh, ORAN, a company called Parallel Wireless, which is bringing connectivity to uh, uh, rural areas around the world. You know, if you look on their website, just to, to give them a plug, you can see they actually were bringing uh, Afghanistan. They were in uh, Nigeria, uh, a lot of areas that don't have connectivity. Um, so, you know, th that's one area. We're also doing workplace safety technology. So making sure employees can uh, safely do their jobs and not have injuries, which can devastate families. Uh, so, you know, again, it's about the returns, but we want to make sure that there is something positive, uh, broadly speaking, that can occur from our investments. Um, do you ever, uh, are you ever concerned about maybe doing too good a job in the sense that like, you know, for instance, when um, the, the ride sharing uh, companies went to India, there were all these protests, right? The Indian taxi drivers were up in arms because it was hurting their lifestyle and they didn't want to have to go through the transition. Do you ever, you know, you ever wonder that you're kind of piercing the veil, so to speak? That's yeah, a, it's a great question. Um, you know, you, you can look at it from every side, you know, and it's, it's not easy, obviously, creating um, automation and taking away jobs. And, um, you know, there's a lot of impact to, uh, to families. And um, so you have to really take a, take a hard line stance and say, is it doing more good than, than not? And um, obviously, bringing technologies to new countries is a challenge. And every country has its own uh, values and, and, and um and needs, and I think you're absolutely right that uh, you have, we have to be mindful of that. We've tried to be that way. I mean, we're working in two of the most, I'd say, uh, insular countries, Japan and Saudi Arabia, very different demographics. One is you know, the oldest economy in Japan. Saudi is one of the youngest economies. I mean, uh, under, I think, 75% of the population is under the age of, of 40 in, uh, in Saudi. So we have to be mindful. There's also different values, uh, religious values, um, so there's a lot that goes into what we think about, but fundamentally, we want to invest in the best technology that we believe can really change the world. Um, Noel, uh, can you look at impact uh, in a non-correlated lens? So um, before well, we go there, I was hoping to address something you said, Matt, which was that you want to be effective in the places where you're investing. And I think some of the conversation around ESG is the S part, the social factor. Sure. 
the focus on human capital. And we hear a lot about DEI and why it's important because, you know, channel, channeling capital to places where it's usually not there, it's the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do because if you have folks on the ground who understand these issues in these cultures, in these regions, that's a better investment. You're getting more data. And it's not data that we see on the balance sheet. And it's not even data that we can see in the UN Sustainability Development Goals. But it's having actual connectivity and people that understand how to make the investment most effective and lift all folks together. So just to play on the conversation around metrics, and maybe we go there next, I'm not sure. But, you know, there's lots of ways to look at it. But I think ultimately having people on the ground and connectivity with the communities in which you're serving is critical to this conversation. Well, let's talk about measurement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I think we're, um, you know, going through a phase where there needs and there's going to be standardization. I mean, obviously, you're, you're hearing it from the SEC. Um, you're seeing it in Europe. And there are all these kind of international scales. Um, do you have any sense of, you know, who you think has the best model and um, how specifically like, you know, your high net worth individuals or family offices can think about it? So for us personally, we actually work with several different asset managers who I find brilliant. You know, just like any other investment, you're going to find asset managers who have deep knowledge, but also expertise with people in the field, analysts who are looking at things to find inefficiencies. That's really what we're here to do, right? And so if an asset manager is doing that well and using both the financial and non-financial data in a way that's not just looking at the point of profitability over the next quarter, but generational change, then you're going to find a really good solution. So for our team, we look at all the different asset managers. Um, most of them think way beyond the next 10 years. And we relay that back to our clients and say, how does this fit with the way that you're thinking about your desire to make an impact? And then we go from there. Tom, do you think uh, that family offices are better suited to make impact investments because you know, they can think in terms of generations? So I think the time horizon for family office is definitely more significant um, and lengthier than um, some other investors, right? So when you look at the time horizon of an impact investment, number one, you're looking to make change, right? Number two, you're looking to take as much time as needed to effectuate that change, okay? And number three, the return profile may be more significant if you have the patience to wait it out. So 100%. I do think impact uh, has become a focus for families uh, more and more over recent years for that reason. Rosemary, um, I think you're probably known as the smartest family office investor in New York. I, I think that's really true. Um, you know, how should folks think about the best place on the balance sheet to deploy their capital in regards to debt facilities, equity, you know, prep, things of that nature, in order to have the most positive impact? Uh, we look at all the al alternatives, basically. So uh, we will, uh, I mean, uh, we have a very fundamental uh, process. So we look for the sustainable performance. And, you know, through that lens, even before impact became a thing, we would avoid any negative impact because by definition, it's not sustainable. It's, uh, I mean, that's our main assumption. So it would be screened out. And um, uh, so... You know, going back uh, uh, probably 15 year, 15 plus years, 
But uh, when we have uh, we have invested in a variety of strategies that have positive impact, and actually, some of uh, several of the best impact is on the lending side, on the credit side, and um, so uh, we're we're in two uh, SBIC funds and. Uh, um, that's uh, helping smaller businesses that wouldn't have access to financing otherwise. And it is highly profitable too. So, you know, the best case, I mean, our holy grail is uh, we want to have um, high returns while making positive impact in our investments and then have even more funds to then deploy in donations and have an another um you know, another whammy on the on the same place, so to speak. Right. So that's the. Uh, so that's the ends the justifies trailer. the means. Yeah, so but speak. I have to say, I mean, I think that um, that you know, I hate to generalize, but probably it's probably in the direct investments that you have the biggest bang for the buck. So we have invested in a in a company that's um, uh, that got breakthrough uh, status uh, for a medical device that um, that helps in oncology surgery and um, uh, basically highlights every last cancer cell uh, during surgery and uh, allows clean margins, reduces the need for a second surgery by more than forty percent and that sort of thing. Um, so we're you know we're expecting a very positive outcome for the for the exit and uh, and in the meantime we're basically changing the future for so many um, cancer patients. Right. So it's um, and uh, and ultimately that's you know, all our proceeds are going to get donated. So I think I showed you that deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I showed you that one. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough, Matt. Uh, you know, you, you're kind of playing uh, both sides in the sense that uh, you have a family office and you have a fund. So um, where do you think um, you can make the most positive change? Is it through direct investments, you know, from the family office or is it in some sort of LP structure? Well, look, I, I take a very holistic approach. I think you can, I don't think if there's an answer that one is better than the other. I think in Unity, you know, we're able to do a lot more. And, and we started this fund um, because we had such a strong family office infrastructure. We were investing in tech companies in the US and bringing them into the Middle East. And we were doing that also for our own returns. It wasn't just impact. Um, the fund came about because we were doing, I think, fairly well. Uh, and we partnered with uh, some close colleagues of ours in Japan who were doing the same thing, bringing technology to Japan. And we felt if we could combine this ecosystem, it would be uh, probably one of the most unique, I mean, being able to bring tech companies into Japan and Saudi, Japan being the third largest economy, Saudi being one of the largest economies in the Gulf. Um, and, you know, w we felt like that would really have a positive impact, not only on our portfolio, but also on our, uh, on the world, the way that we, you know, the way that we're trying to bring together. Um, so it's, I think it's a combination of both is the way, is the answer, okay. if that makes sense. And Steve, if I could just make a quick comment, okay, I, most of the people that are here that know, you know, the trail of how Aspen Tree has evolved, I was very good at selecting managers and selecting professionals that knew how to run investment portfolios. And I think there very much is a place for that. And just because you're hearing more and more today about family office co-investments and collaboration, um, especially you know in and surrounding the impact space, um, I think there very much is a place for managed portfolios. And um, at certain points, it's 
a good thing to leave it up to the professionals. Uh, Tom, let me ask a follow-up question, which is, uh, you know, today, now more than ever, there are a myriad of different financial structures and um, sectors within the sector that you can take advantage of, right? I mean, you can get um, involved in impact through EV, through water generation, uh, through diversity and inclusion, uh, but you could also do it, you know, through a SPAC, through bonds, whatever it might be. How should a family office think about kind of, you know, that giant spectrum of opportunities? So I think it really comes up to their investment thesis and what their overall portfolio construction looks like outside of the impact space. So if a family has, you know, a lot of exposure to a certain sector, but they are still looking to make a philanthropic, um, you know, portion of their portfolio, um, I think it's important to just make sure that there's not too much overlap when you say like, you know, maybe uh, exercising SPAC opportunities, which we've heard tons about, or, um, you know, doing uh, some sort of more public offering. Um, you know, when you think of impact investing recently, I think we think about private investments, right? We think of private companies, we think of funds, um, but there are plenty of public vehicles that you can make an impact and, you know, exercise investments through. How do you guys, and I'll just open it up to all of you, how do you guys think about the concept of opting out versus opting in? And uh, what I mean by opting in is if you look at engine number one, right, which is this small hedge fund that recently got uh, three board seats on Exxon's board, and, you know, they did that all under the auspices of hoping to change their policy on climate change, um, couldn't be more activist versus, you know, folks who just basically say like, all right, I'm going to completely stay out of investing in oil and gas because, you know, it's it's increasing greenhouse gases. Steve, I'm going to make one comment and then turn it over to the panel. So in that scenario, if you look at that, they took one fifth of the company's board seats, right? And I, I think there is going to be a very positive change surrounding that. But, um, you, you know, that's that's big. I mean, three board seats out of what, 15? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I see this as an opportunity for influence, you know, and, and ultimately, usually that's the investment, but now you can have additional influence. And so um, for us, it's been a way to help the, even the younger investors, the next generation, get really engaged because oftentimes they don't know what it is to feel power and influence quite yet. But in this conversation around, um, and we talked to them about the group As You Sow and proxy voting and shareholder engagements for the public side, um, it starts to come alive. And so it, to me, is this somewhat democratization um, of the capital markets because every investor, not just those with the most capital can feel that their vote counts and it's going to be doing something. So we love that conversation, but we would never impose it. I do have clients who live in the rainforest um, in, in Hawaii and say, I'm a passive person. I'm discreet. I, I don't want my name on anything. But, um, you know, have the asset managers vote and do my proxy voting. So I would, sorry, I would add one other thing. Um, and I think, you know, the question gets to the, the, the point of how so, you know, impact has really become um, mainstream in some ways. I mean, we participated in 2015 in an impact investment conference at Harvard University. They do a, a great job. I'll give them a plug. James Gifford and Falco, uh, who are two of, I think, two of the leaders in impact. Um, we brought together some of the leading families. We talked about how, you know, next generation families can get more involved in impact. 
Um, and it was much, it was, it was so much more limited. Um, banks, and now, I mean, you've got, every bank has an impact uh, officer. There's a lot more, um, these funds, there's these metrics. Um, obviously, you have to make sure if, if there are people in the audience that are looking to get into impact, you have to make sure that there's real teeth to, you know, the screening and what people are saying. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's amazing how far we've come and how much there's been a push for this entire industry. I might, I might add also, I think, back to your question, I think activism is a very essential ingredient for uh, having impact. But I think the uh, main difference probably between the opting in, opting out is the, the time scale of change. Uh, because um, being activist is hopefully going to accelerate the pace of change dramatically versus uh, opting out and withholding capital and funding from undesirable right. that's a good behavior. Point. So right. that's, uh, that's how I view it. Um, are, are, are family offices and ultra high net worths, are they looking at climate change as a risk factor when they're considering making allocations out of the portfolio? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, at least for our investors, um, for an asset manager that doesn't even consider it, they, they, they say, how do you risk manage? You know, it's just very obvious. Like, of course, I'm from Hawaii, so we live in an island, um, and I do work on the West Coast, so we're seeing it real time. It's, it's our lived experience, and so to not consider that when you're managing capital seems like, what world are you in? So, no, it's not just risk, it's opportunity. So it's one thing to be a, a res responsible corporation, it's another to actually create solutions. And so I think when it comes to family offices that are leading the charge, like some of the folks here, um, they get to be slightly more innovative and be the tip of the spear, which then creates opportunities that are scalable for the rest of everyone else to participate in. But those innovative solutions start with that private investment, oftentimes not all have access to. So we're, we're really leaning on the folks who can to, to make those investments so that we can follow suit and, and bring more capital to the opportunity. Noel, do you think, because um, your uh, business is mm -hmm. Hawaii, Oregon, and California. Yeah, um, do you feel that there's kind of an East Coast, West Coast thing uh, when, it, when it comes to the, the recognition and real application of impact investing? Yes and no. I mean, we find kindred spirits here in the city, and they've been amazing. I mean, I, I, I'm, this is going to be a little bit of a fangirl moment, but when I heard Justin Rockefeller speak, you know, it was like, oh, yes, you know, absolutely. He gets it. He's got friends who get it. And he's not from the West Coast. So, no, I think that absolutely in Silicon Valley, there's a focus on innovation. There's a focus on what's going to be happening 10, 20 years from now. And so that type of thinking and creativity is just a beautiful environment to be having these types of conversations around impact solutions. Not to mention, I think people are, are a little more connected. I, I don't want to generalize, but most part connected to, to nature and the effects of climate. And also the, there is more focus on social justice um, in these hubs like San Francisco, LA, Seattle. So I think the conversation is, um, it's, it's not like learning a foreign language. It, it's definitely everyone speaking in this way. And so um, I'm excited to be able to have our business there and serve the families we do. Tom, uh, I'd venture to say no one in this room knows more family offices than you do. Um, do you uh, hear from them uh, or do, do, do they reflect thinking about impact investing differently based on where they're living in the country? I would say, yeah. so, so 
that that you you gave me a very tough question. So so if you think of California emissions and you think of lowering greenhouse gases and um you, you know environmental obviously you think of California, right? You think of the West Coast. Um I think that has changed. So if you think of, you know, Shane who we had here yesterday, um he's dedicated his life and invested a lot of money into the EV space to lower greenhouse gas emissions, right? There are other companies that are New York based that um, By the way, just to be clear that that's Shane McMahon uh from the McMahon family in Connecticut that uh founded WWE and WWF. So so yeah, if you look at some other companies that I work with that uh their mission is to lower greenhouse gas emissions, they are based in New York and Colorado. Um so I I do think um you, you know, across the country, people have realized that lowering um, emissions and raising standards is very important. When you think about, you know, the current administration's mission to uh, plug leaking, um, you know, wellheads and um, focus on alternative fuel sources and everything else, I think that's something that, um, you know, spans across the country at this point. And then when you look at uh, technological advancement um, that, you know, drives most of the impact today, um, you know, New York is a hub. Seattle's a hub. California's a hub. They're, the Southeast is becoming a hub. So I, I think it is pretty broad, in my opinion. Matt, um, uh, you're really, uh, you really put your money where your mouth is. And, you know, not only with GSI, but you also are a film producer. And uh, the common theme in your films is social justice, uh, diversity, and inclusion. Um, I, you know, I'd, 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 be, I'd be surprised if anybody else in this room has really done more, you know, for their mission than you have. Um, can you just talk about, you know, what you're doing with, with producing? You're like, you're a polymath, by the way. <laughs> Matt is a, he's an, he's an attorney, he runs this great family office. He's got a fund, I don't know, just got engaged and, and he's an executive producer or a producer on all these films. So well, can you just talk about that. Thank you. I, I think for that, I'm going to have to put you in the next film. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I, look, th there's a, just to combine worlds, there's a, uh, the first female Saudi director made a she, she was i think she spoke a few years ago and she said that art can really take hold of you it can open your mind and you know i've always had a passion for art and and film as a vehicle to change uh the way we think to educate to inspire and again you know we we try to to make commercial films it's not just about making a film solely for the message. It's a combination similar to what we do with the family office and the fund. Um, but I've been fortunate to, to be part of uh, over 10 films. Our most recent film uh, is called Worth. It's the story of Ken Feinberg, who was uh, the 9-11 special master. He was really tasked with the uh, role of determining the value of human life. And um, obviously, it was a uh, transformation as he went from kind of, you know, very matter of fact, uh, trying to figure out a, a formula to um, really understanding and becoming so much more empathic and uh, going through a transformation to understand what the families were going through uh, and to understand what our worth is in, in, in humanity, regardless of what we do and how much we make. And um, there's, a, there's a 
you know, we're all in a sense uh, the same. Um, and uh, so we were fortunate that came out. That's on Netflix. If everyone wants to check out, Michael Keaton plays Ken and uh, Stanley Tucci plays the other lead. Um, we were fortunate to be part of The Butler, which was a civil rights film. And for me, that was a passion. Uh, having uh, my mother was very involved with civil rights. And uh, uh, so, so a lot of these movies, I think, can make a, a real difference in the way we think about the world. Uh, and, and that's the way we also approach our investments uh, in, in technology, in the family office. How can we, uh, as I said at the very beginning, leave the world better than when we found it? And Matt, I would like to personally thank you for the last film you produced as a 9-11 rescue and recovery worker. Um, coming up on 20 years this year, it's heavy in a lot of our hearts. And um, you released that film at the right time. And I really appreciate it to keep the memories alive. Absolutely. Thank you. thank you for your service. I guess I would offer that those same stories are embedded in the families that we serve. So a lot of them created wealth that may have had implications that they didn't expect, whether they created greater inequality or they actually created some part in the climate crisis. So what I see is this great opportunity to bring family back together, to go back to the source of the wealth, understanding what was done and say, okay, and now what can we do with it? And so it becomes this um, point of healing often, and also inspiration for the next generation because so many times when we see with families that have created enormous amounts of wealth, the children become kind of the shadow of that established wealth and you try to find ways to engage them in order to, to not live a toxic type of um, scenario just by pure physics of that experience. And it's this, this conversation around impact investing where we get them into talking about what can we do about this family legacy, which yes, it started in this way, but now we're redefining it. And so I see this just like your work in film. I feel like this is our mini stage to, to help the families that we're working with. Um, however, sometimes, uh, impact investing uh, can alienate people or just the concept of it, right? I mean, if you, you know, some people use the term global warming, some people use the term climate change and, and you know, certain people get very sensitive about that. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering uh, if, uh, you know, if impact investing can hurt your co-investment relationships, right? I mean, a lot of times, and I'm not talking about where I am on the political spectrum, but a lot of times I sit in a room, and I just keep my mouth shut. Right. What uh, I'm just curious, like, you know, a, a, have you seen that at all where because certainly, look, there's a there's a, a lot of red state families and blue state families and, uh, you know, D.C. or or at all at any times feel alienated by uh, whatever the agenda of the family office is. I mean, for you know, I don't know if this addresses your question, but, you know, we look at a lot of investments as a family office and. We consider ourselves impact investors, and um, do we lead with that when you know when we uh, probably not? But we're we're returns driven investors. If someone shares a fund with us that is an impact investment, are we skeptical? I mean, is you know is there a um, question whether that'll still have a returns, you know, uh, priority? Uh, I mean, I, I think. I think five years ago, there might have been more of that um, stigma. I think it's changed. I think the way that we look at impact and the way that families are approaching it, and um, especially with technology, I mean, 
you know, the Yale endowment is now putting over 20% of their portfolio into venture. Whether you agree or don't agree, um, there's so much capital going in, but that's the gold standard of portfolio allocation. They're putting 20%. So there's a lot more, I think, opportunities to do impact investments. Um, maybe not your traditional, just a clean energy or, or, or all these metrics, but I think because of the uh, amount of sort of technology opportunities and the way the market is, there's, I think, more and more opportunities there to, to, become, uh, to become active. Rosemary, can, can you talk a little bit about uh, co-investment relationships as a family office? How do you develop them? You know, who do you, who do you trust, et cetera? Who's, uh, yeah. Well, we've been, um, you know, doing it long enough that we have a, a good network between uh, Mark and, and myself. And uh, we, we have uh, tended to go for the, uh, the situations where we have a personal relationship in the, uh, from the past or whatever, and we have a, a high comfort level. That's what's, uh, what it boils down to. Um, and uh, we have, um, you know, uh, we like direct investing, but we don't do a lot of it because we're a very lean team and you really have to be on top of those investments. You have to have a champion. So co-investing has been the better way to proceed because then you're making sure that there there is a, a good brains purely focused on that investment and nothing else. And that's uh, so that's been our preferred route. And um, at the same time, also, I mean, we're we're 100% invested in alternatives, which by definition are very liquid. And when you get into P structured in investments and and venture and whatever, yeah, you're, we we just don't do 10-year horizons. We don't have the patience for that because we have to produce donations all the time. And uh, so it's so doing co-investments has also been a way for us to shorten that time period and shorten the duration of the investment, because that way, by the time we co-invest in a particular investment, uh, generally we're at a, a later series, we're closer to exit, and uh, much better transparency. So the risk goes down. The typically it'll be uh, it'll be um, lower multiple at that stage, but it'll be um, higher IRR. Right. Uh, the yeah, because the uh, so so that's uh, that's kind of our sweet spot. So so we've done that uh, different ways, but uh, we um, a recent investment of ours was actually in a co-investment fund uh, of a uh, of a venture capital fund of funds firm. Um, on the West Coast, and um, what made it, um, I mean, there's a particular angle to it because they're mainly, uh, a lot of the GP and a lot of the LPs are athletes that actually are become preferred LPs in individual investments because they test out the products in, in consumer and wellness and so on, and therefore they're preferred. And we were able to get into the uh, final round before the close of this co-investment fund where uh, about 40% was already invested and um, and with some exits imminent. So we managed to shorten that time frame. We already getting uh, distributions and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, returns um, impact because of the underlying investments and, um, uh, and a, a shorter duration. Does uh, anyone on the panel uh, look at carbon credits, right? Because there are a number of technologies out there that have no real fundamental business model other than carbon credits. For instance, I don't know if you saw last week in the journal, there was an article about, I'll call it an unfactory, right? In Iceland that was uh, pulling carbon out of the air, 
right? So um, the only way that they're uh, going to have a sustainable business model uh, is carbon credit. So I'm just curious if, if folks are looking at that. I mean, this is where I belong to a big firm on purpose because I would rather have those analysts that are they're focused on that, like give me the report to know. And I think it's still young and it's still an exciting opportunity that um, you know we want a little more research on before we allocate any funds. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just add, we've heard a lot in recent days about carbon credits, but there has been very little guidance. So, um, yet, you know, I do think there will be families that will take advantage of carbon credits because it works for them. But I think a lot of family foundations and families will also look for a returns-based approach or, um, yet, you know, they, they'll, you know, proceed with a philanthropic endeavor if there's you know zero return or zero alpha being generated um you have to have a need for those carbon credits right um i think we have time for a couple questions from the audience uh if anyone would like to ask one Uh, what are your oh okay? Uh, what are your thoughts also on these kind of absurd cash yields that some of these crypto corporations have been promising um, that are collateralized, actually over collateralized in crypto assets like Bitcoin? So you're speaking to the ESG impact investing panel, right. and um, so I don't think any one of us is a crypto expert. However, on our team, we did hire a partner who came from the digital currency world because we do see it as something we want to be knowledgeable about, and we want to have network and and some real expertise. So I wish I had her with me on this stage, but um, I would say that the concern for us is really the, the climate effect and, and trying to mitigate and understand the actual trade-off between um, the use of digital currency and um, the, the, the impact it has on the climate. Um, I could add uh, our perspective to that. And uh, I mean, crypto has been very criticized for being environmentally unfriendly and huge consumer of uh, of energy and so on. So, um, so uh, we have made only one investment, a recent investment in the space, and that's actually a fund that focuses on like the pickaxes and shovels in terms of the, uh, the infrastructure required for cryptocurrencies. And, um, and the impact perspective is that they're making it more efficient and figuring out ways to use less energy and, and therefore having an indirect impact in addition to hopefully being profitable. Rosemary, but, you know, look at El Salvador, right? El Salvador recently adopted crypto as, as their national currency or one of their national currencies. And um, I don't know, is it possible that crypto uh, perhaps can, you know, lift some of these developing nations uh, and giving them kind of an alternative to either the dollar or, you know, whatever... Uh, yeah, I mean, you could, you know, again, this comes to the elastic concept of impact because, yes, it could uplift the masses just by by uh, if if it gets uh, inflation under control and money supply and so on, and and therefore um, helps to preserve the value of the currency. So yes, there's an, uh, you know, but uh, you know, again, it's sort of uh, 
how how far do you go on the definition of impact? Right. And there's a reason yeah. there has been so much focus on crypto during this conference. And backstage, I was talking to John Najarian, and I would encourage you to grab John's ear for a few minutes. Um, in the case of El Salvador, I definitely think there is a net benefit, right? Um, and I think there will be a net benefit globally. But how do you frame that into impact? I guess that's you know we're a little confused. I think there's a great uh, argument to be made for the uh, for impact in terms of the use of blockchain, mm -hmm. you know, to protect farmers, to protect uh, you know, if the, you know that sort of thing, right. prevent theft and you know, increase security. So all of that. <laughs> Hi, another uh, question. It's a little. A little bit off topic, but um, we're sort of in a heightened regulatory environment. Um, family offices as a, an investment uh, unit, are there any risks to regulation? I, I don't know if there are any lawyers in the, on well, the panel. Well, you know, I'll take that. I'm, I'm talking on a uh, panel in a couple of weeks uh, with Jeffries and Senator Corker and uh, just about that, the new proposed regulation of family offices. And um, look, you know, uh, the number of family offices uh, has skyrocketed. Uh, and frankly, the investment power of family offices uh, has multiplied tenfold uh, over just the last five years. And so, you know, I, you, know they're, they're, you never want to regulate things generally, but, you know, there also is uh, a discussion we had about, you know, how much power they're wielding and uh, do things just at least need to be looked at. I don't think that that's absurd at all. I think we have time for one last question. Sorry. Quantitative metrics to get an idea of the, the, the actual, to measure the impact, if you could. Great. I mean, we could be here all day. Thank you for that question. Um, that's the beauty of the non-financial data. So um, Europe has its own measure. You know, there's the UN Sustainability Development Goals, there's Sustainalytics, there's MSCI with buckets of analysts, and they all have their own ratings. What we've done is basically triangulated data between three of our favorite data providers. And this is me as in Morgan Stanley. We've had teams of people looking at what's the best to own. And so only through triangulating you know, a database that's really focused on equity, one that's focused on carbon emissions, and one that's kind of broadly looking at sustainability, then we can get a measure of how aligned a person's portfolio is to their values. So we've actually had to use multiple databases to come at some level of a relative marker. I don't know if anyone else has other measures. Well, you know, uh, the last thing I'll say is that um, uh, the SDG criteria uh, is being used as a way to give favorable treatment for impact investing uh, through charging, uh, you know, lower bond yields. Uh, to folks that are ESG focused. So I think that's interesting anyway. It seems to be kind of a burgeoning area. So uh, I think we're out of time, unfortunately. But uh, I want to thank our panel, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you all. Thank you.